You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, this is Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. And I'm here with Ali Thomaseb, who is a partner at DCVC, a venture firm here in Silicon Valley, and also the author of a brand new book. I think it's getting released right around now. I think you might've just gotten your first shipment, right? I think I saw on your LinkedIn that you got, you just got a big box delivered to your house and it's called Super Founders, What Data Reveals About Billion Dollar Startups. And this is a kind of a labor of a lot of work went into this. I think you said that you spent four years writing this book. Is that right, Ali? I did. Yeah. I spent the last four years collecting the data set, which is the largest data set ever collected on the startups. This is the largest data-driven study on startups trying to understand what, if at all, differentiates billion-dollar companies from the typical venture-backed companies, which oftentimes fail or stay at a certain level, become zombied, as we say it, and if there is anything fundamentally different about them. So this is 65 data points per company, and it's 30,000 data point data set. So it took me four years to collect and analyze this data, and one year to write the book, which just came out. We'll talk about your methodology in a second, but I want to talk a bit about your motivation. There's a lot of discussion about how venture capitalists invest and how they predict the success of a startup. And I think there's a lot of criticism around how venture capitalists think about founders. And people are saying that the venture world is ripe for its money ball moment. It's ripe for its Billy Bean moment so that these VCs don't just look at somebody and say, oh yeah, you know, you went to Stanford and you got the MBA and, and, you know, you know how to code and therefore, you know, we're going to, we're going to hand you some venture money. Was this motivated by a desire to really make the process more scientific? Is it just pure curiosity? What was your motivation? Yeah. I mean, even today, this 2021, we are on Clubhouse. I sit on partnership meetings, not just our firm, like every other firm that I see VCs. And it's pretty known by people in the industry, lesser known by people outside of the industry. We make decisions based on gut feeling. That's it. We don't make data-driven decisions. And it's not just VCs. I would say even founders, journalists, people in the ecosystem, lawyers, bankers, everybody, even small startup, everybody around the ecosystem of entrepreneurship has these preconceived notion, has these stereotypes, has this myth about what works and what does not work. And they decide or they talk about or they give advice about startups based on what they've heard, what they've read, what they've seen, and even the most successful venture capitalists, they've sit on the boards of $5 billion companies. And nobody sees this holistically. Everybody sees micro scale. Everybody has seen three examples, and that's how they generalize it. You see something doesn't work, you're not going to invest in that for the entire of your career. You've seen something work, you're going to do it, keep doing it. So I think the motivation was I saw this thing exists. And from some of the examples that I was saying, you know, become successful, I thought maybe this is not right. And I'm a data-driven person. So I thought somebody should collect this data. What do you mean? People have been starting companies for the past hundreds of years and in the more modern way with venture capital and stuff for the past 50 years. And nobody studied this, what leads to success, what doesn't, what is correlated, what doesn't. And nobody did. Nobody has. I can say this the first time. That was the motivation. And even now in 2021 in Clubhouse or Twitter, I see people talk about this and I want to scream because 
they're talking from gut feeling and they're talking stereotypically and they're saying things that are wrong and I'm mad that wrong things get attention and get repeated and repeated and become a fact. So my goal with the book is to stop the wrong things from becoming a fact. Well, what's funny is that if one of your founders came to you and said, I, I want your money. And you said, well, what are you going to do? And he says, well, I'm just going to make a whole bunch of gut-based decisions going forward. You'd say, you know what? Maybe you're just not the firm for us, right? I mean, venture capitalists insist that their founders be highly data-driven, but they sort of haven't joined the movement themselves. Do you find that a bit ironic? There's a lot of things that are ironic about what VCs say. I think the most ironic thing is, and it's true, you should not compare venture capital with a startup. But if you're just looking to things that are ironic, one thing is like, how are you different? But you have five competitors. And, you know, as VCs, you have a thousand competitors and your differentiation is close to zero. Like VCs actually don't differ that much from each other based on the tier. But within a specific tier, type of access and stuff, there's not that much that actually differentiates one firm from another firm. But that's the irony of it. You don't invest in a company that has a thousand competitors doing the same business model and have been doing that for the past 50 years. Right. Well, in the world of finance outside of venture, quantitative work has been, it's huge. I mean, I teach the financial yeah. engineers and they'll take stocks and pick them apart and you can find 500, 5,000, 10,000 features about a company just from their public disclosures. And so I think what a lot of people have said about startups is that well, there's just not a lot of data. I mean, you can go to Crunchbase and you go to AngelList and I have had students that have tried to do projects where they would grab data from these sources and try to make predictions, but the data is not very rich, right? So what did you have to do to go and get all this data? It's not just available through the push of a button, right? 100%. And even when you go back to the 70s, when Renaissance and, and the firms like that were pushing for quantitative finance, they got a lot of pushback. Even today, you have all these things about fundamental versus quant investing. I think we are seeing some of these kind of stuff come to venture capital. It's partly true that there's not enough data. We don't have as many companies and there's not that much data that you have on them because they're not public companies. But I think you're getting there. There's more and more companies now. There's more people collecting this data. And yeah, there's Crunchbase, there's PitchBook, there's AngelList. There's a couple sources of data, but that's mostly on what are the names of the founders and what is the funding history of this company. Nobody has collected data on when this company was founded back in 2008, how many competitors did they have? When they started in 2011, how big was this market? What was the career path of these founders? Were they technical or were they non-technical? And a lot of other questions. That's why it took me four years and I couldn't even outsource it because a lot of it requires judgment from somebody whose job is kind of doing this thing. Company by company spent hours going through the internet archives, sometimes emailing these founders, emailing other companies in the space to collect this data, data point by data points, 30,000 data points I've collected one by one by one, nothing automated there. Well, let's talk about some of the myths. You talk about founder's background. I guess let's start with that one because I think that's the one that a lot of people think, well, I, I can't be a founder because I didn't go to Stanford or I can't code or I'm too old. What do we know about the successful founders? And also, I guess maybe talk a little bit about your methodology before you answer that question. So my data has basically all this data on every billion dollar company that was started between 2005 and 2018. That's 14 years, which is about 200 something companies. And the exact same data elements on a randomly selected group of companies that received a minimum of $3 million in venture capital funding during the same time period, 
randomly selected. So I compare these two groups, the random group and the unicorn group, the billion dollar group. And my unicorn group is not only unicorns as the meaning of private companies. It's companies that were acquired, became more than a billion dollars. They IPO'd, they became more than a billion dollars and privately valued companies. When you compare these two groups, you see that a lot of things do not have correlation to success. And that's where you're getting the wrong advice. But also you see some stuff do correlate with success, which is where it would be a good advice or a good sourcing strategy or a good venture capital strategy. So let's maybe first talk about some of these things that do not correlate. Number one, age. Age does not correlate with success based on the study and based on my data. And there are two camps here. There's the VCs who source universities and there's the VCs and investors who who want to invest in people who are two years out of Google, project managers, software engineer out of Google, they tend to be in their early 20s and they're creating a bias just because of the way they source and the networks they go after. And there's the other camp, which is the 2000 Boston type of investing or the 90s type of investing, which is old gray hair, let's bring a professional CEO, let's bring a professional person to run this company or like a professional founder who's 50 years old and has had three decades of experience. And there was even this 2017 or 18 Harvard Business Review article that said, yeah, successful founders are 45 years old and that made the news everywhere. And they have had their own methods, but I don't necessarily think they're quantifying a startup founder the same way as us people in this startup ecosystem and venture capital define what a startup is. So the way I define these companies and when I compare them, there's no advantage or disadvantage to any age group in founding billion dollar companies. They were anywhere from 18 years old to 68 years old. The health and biotech ones were on average older. They were 42 versus the general founders, which were 34, which still is a little bit older than what people would consider. A lot of people would think they're like 23, but they're 34. But you didn't like pair them up. So you didn't say, well, the successful biotech firms, the billion-dollar biotech firms were founded by the 42-year-olds and the unsuccessful biotech firms were founded by the 24-year-olds, right? You didn't match by sector, did you? I did. And even when you do, you don't still see a difference in the distribution. Ah. So basically what it says is, sure, the average is 42 in biotech and the average is 34 in tech, but it doesn't mean if you're older or younger, you are less or more likely to succeed. The distribution is more or less the same but that's the averages. That's what got funded and what got founded and what got to a billion dollar startup kind of valuation. What about background and education? We've got the classic story in mind about Mark Zuckerberg dropping out of college. I think it, Peter Thiel had this idea that he was going to induce people to quit college. And so there's that stereotype out there. And I think you would say that, well, maybe that's not true. There's plenty of people with PhDs that start companies. Right. So that stereotype that you said, The Mark Zuckerberg is only 3% of billion-dollar startup founders. That archetype, that stereotype, which is an Ivy League dropout, that's 3% of billion-dollar company founding CEOs. The other 97% are different. They've had a number of different type of degrees and educational backgrounds. The most common was just a bachelor's degree. I think about 37 38% just had a bachelor's degree, graduated, they did something. 21% had an MBA, which was the most common advanced degree. Then maybe not like 18%, they had a master's, a non-business master's degree. And then it was like a PhD, professor, law degree, medical school, a range of kind of degrees. However, still, when you compare the two groups, the random group and the billion dollar group, again, you see it's the same distribution. There's no advantage or disadvantage to being a dropout, to only having a bachelor's, to having a PhD. It's just what companies got funded and founded. 
And when you see companies that receive $3 million of funding and the companies that became billion dollar company, you don't see a difference in these two distribution. So you can kind of say, you know, education degree does not matter. Now, moving on to the ranking of the university, and obviously all these two groups, when you compare to the general US population, obviously they're more educated, no question there. But I'm comparing the companies that got $3 million of funding versus the ones that became a billion dollar company, then you don't see a difference. In terms of ranking, it seems like the ranking did matter. So the founders who started billion dollar companies were on average went to schools that ranked higher, ranked better. But when you look at the distribution, it's an interesting distribution. It's like a barbell. You have 35% or you have this percentage of founders who went to a top 10 school and you have exactly the same amount, even a little bit more, who went to schools that were not even in the first 100. They literally went to schools I had not heard about. And then there's this kind of thing in the middle as well. And I saw that in the career path as well. You have these group of founders who went to, you know, the Googles and the McKinsey's of the world. And you have the same amount and a little bit more that went and worked for companies that you haven't heard about them. So yes, on average, they worked at better companies and on average, they went to better schools. But still, a large group of them became successful even though they had not worked a good company or went to a good school. What about the founding team? So I teach engineers, I teach MBAs, and the mantra that we we all teach everybody is, if you're a business folk person, go find a technical co-founder and, and vice versa, right? And that that's kind of the ideal scenario. You've got these two co-founders, one on the business side, one on the technical side, and that's kind of the classic founding team. You saw examples of solo founders. You saw examples of where you had a dozen founders. I think Alibaba was what? 18 founders, yeah. So is there a pattern there? Two different charts that I'm referencing in the book. So first one is in the number of co-founders. I would say a lot of people would say, don't start a company solo. Solo founders are bad. A lot of people have publicly talked about it. You go and see, you know, what VCs fund, but VCs don't like, investors don't like solo founders. You see it a lot. You would think, okay, who starts a company with five co-founders? Like who starts a company with four co-founders? What about even three? The main stories you've heard about is two co-founders, one technical, one business. That's the stereotypical founding team, right? When I looked at the data, one out of every five billion dollar company was solo founded. That's much larger than you would think otherwise. And then there's also companies that have five co-founders. There's companies that have four co-founders. It's true. The most common case is two co-founders, then three, then one, then four, then five. But again, when I compare the distribution between the unicorns and the companies that got funded, you see it's the same distribution. Solo founders were not less likely. They were not more likely. Two co-founders, not less likely, not more likely. Five co-founders, not less likely, not more likely to start building our companies. The other question is the combination, technical versus non-technical. Let me ask you this question, and you've read the book, so you may have a better educated guess. What percent of founding CEOs of billion-dollar startups do you think are non-technical? I think I remember seeing that there's more non-technical than technical. I think that was what I remember from the book. Right. Yeah. Surprised me. Surprising. Yes. Because the other thing is that what I've heard from a lot of VCs is that they don't want to fund MBAs. Like, don't fund an MBA. But then you see a lot of MBAs in, in the founders, right? Maybe it's just a new thing that they don't want to fund MBAs. 21%. It's very significant for a category that investors would say we don't like to fund MBAs. So it was split right in the middle. 50.5% were non-technical and 49.5% were technical. Basically equal. 
And that's kind of shocking to a lot of people, but that's the reality. So about half these founders were non-technical. And I remember posting this on Twitter and a lot of people backlash, like, no, it's wrong. Maybe those, those MBAs were technical. And I looked in the data and no, 88% of those MBAs were non-technical. So again, these are the kind of stereotypes that people have gone. Right. I think you mentioned the founder of Canva. Canva is this awesome product. And you said the founder of Canva was zero technical background at all. Exactly. And a lot, a lot of other companies, but yes. So Canva, the CEO and the second person, COO, they were non-technical. The third person they brought in, that was a technical founder. When you look at the combination, again, what you said, if you're a non-technical, bring a technical. And if you are technical, bring a non-technical. So I wouldn't say it's wrong, but the data suggests otherwise, which doesn't say that the advice is wrong, but the data suggests when the founding CEO was technical, among the billion dollar companies. When they were technical, it was more likely that their second person in the company was technical too. And when they were non-technical, it was more probable that their second person in rank was non-technical too. And if you trace it back, you start companies with your friends or people you've worked with. If you're a CS student, it's more likely you start a company with your another friend who is also a CS student. And if you're an MBA or if you are a biz dev or salesperson in a company, it's more likely you start a company with someone else in that same. So again, we think the perfect thing is we combine this, but again, that doesn't necessarily exist in the billion dollar companies. Again, kind of a myth that you always have technical plus non-technical. Yeah. So I guess, well, you also mentioned something about how long the co-founders knew each other, right? So if you've known someone pretty well, you've worked together a couple of cases you describe of people, you know, working together at Google and then leaving to start a company. That's very different from people who kind of meet at these meetups. I was just talking to a student of mine who just got 85 million for his startup. He's a co-founder and he's a business student who met his co-founder, who's an engineering student at one of these meet and greets these things that we have on campus where they, they meet each other yeah. and then they did a bunch of hackathons together. And I don't think it would be fair to say that they were best friends. They're as good of friends as you can be after you spend nine months doing hackathons together, but they didn't like exactly grow up together. And now they're like a really solid team. But I think what you're saying is that a longer term relationship is more likely to lead to a successful outcome. But then there was another point about family members. And I think that VCs are reluctant to fund people who are family members or uh, relatives. Right. On a previous point, let me make that better or correct this a little bit. 45% of founders of billion dollar companies, they either, they had worked at the same company or went to the same university before. I don't have a quantitative way to measure how long people have been friends. Maybe they didn't go to the same school or didn't work at the same company and they were friends. I don't know that. And also I did not collect this specific data on the non-unicorn group because it was kind of harder to collect. So I'm not claiming they were more likely to become billion dollar founders. It seems like 45% is a high percentage. So maybe they are, but I don't have the baseline. So I'm not claiming that. But 45% seemed like a very large number. But we have a lot of examples of the otherwise. And the aim of the book is actually remove these proxy rules that you need to be technical, you need to be two founders, yeah. you need to have known each other or not known each other. Coinbase founders found each other on Reddit. Brex founders found each other on Skype or like an online forum. Dropbox founder, he went to YC, applied for the YC, and PG told him, you've got to find another co-founder. He found Arash. There's a lot of these examples of companies that they found somebody, they found it on and they added on and it worked out. So I'm not necessarily claiming this way or another. Garrett Camp and Kalanick, they met at a conference, right? 
Yes, I think they went on to work on a bunch of stuff before starting the company, before starting Uber. But yeah, there's a lot of companies that they have had shorter relationships with, right? The other one about family members. Yes, I think that's something you commonly hear. I found a lot of examples of this on Quora, on a lot of forums that, hey, if I'm starting this company with my brother, would VCs fund me or not? And I've personally seen a lot of instances where VCs did not fund these kind of companies just because of that. And when you look at the data and look at these companies, there's a sizable number of billion-dollar companies that are started by family members, husband and wife, fiancés, father and son, two brothers, three brothers. It happens. It's there. So basically, we should forget these proxy rules that because you're brothers, you shouldn't start a company together. Carlson's did okay. They did very well. (laughs) And I guess there's one other thing about founders that I found interesting, which is I think most people would believe you have to have domain expertise before you start a company, right? Like if you're going to be starting a pharma company, it helps to know a thing or two about pharmaceuticals. Yet you point out a couple cases where people were looking around for some problem to solve and it wasn't necessarily in their own domain. Yes, 100%. With biotech and healthcare being an exception, in other areas, which includes enterprise, B2B, SaaS, consumer, actually the majority of founders of billion-dollar companies did not have domain expertise. That doesn't mean they didn't have industry experience. On average, they had 11 years of work experience. But you may have worked in insurance and end up starting a database company, or you may have worked in health or fintech, and you ended up starting a company in another domain. So what I found is, I think in consumer companies, only 30% had domain expertise, and in enterprise, only 40% had domain expertise, had worked in that specific industry before. So that's another kind of proxy rule that's talking about this, but with hard science and biotech generally being an exception to this. What I found transfers is these soft skills. So basically your connections, your resources, your ability to manage a team, your ability to put down fires, that's what transfers from one company to another, from one industry to another. And if you're good enough, you go and learn everything that you need to learn about this new industry. That's another thing that I observed, which is founders of these billion-dollar companies, in a lot of cases, they were not missionary about solving a problem for themselves. I think that's another thing that gets talked about. Solve your own problem. Be your own customer. And that seems like perfect advice, but that's why we have so many valet parking and grocery delivery app companies. It's nobody's problem. Climate change is nobody's specific problem. Agriculture, food security, water scarcity, these are not anyone's specific problems, but these are hundreds of times larger problems by economics, by by the scope, than grocery delivery or valet parking or any other consumer thing that you may be a customer of. So when I looked at these billion-dollar companies, in a lot of these cases, they were not solving their own problems. They actually deliberately went on to find the right idea. They had some high-level thinking that, okay, things are shifting to cloud. Let me go find the right idea that supports my thesis around the shift to the cloud. Or I like building software for SMBs. Let me go and find a problem. And I think a lot of VCs frown upon that. They don't like a founder who went and looked for an idea and found it. They want a founder who was, this is my my mark in the world. I've been thinking about this problem for 20 years and I'm solving this for myself. And I saw this in my childhood or I come from that kind of family. Media wants to see that. And one part of the reason that has become a stereotype is what you see in interviews and journalists. Because when founders are talking about the story, they somehow try to make it personal. 
because that's what gets funded and that's what get coverage. But when you actually dig deep, you say, okay, but you actually change your idea 10 times and you were working on other industries and stuff. It wasn't really your, your personal problem or not. So I think that's another advice that you don't need to be your own customer. You need to learn more than everybody else. And you need to have a unique advantage about a specific industry to know that industry better than anyone else. But you don't necessarily need to be your own customer. Before we get into some of the other things about the companies, I want to really highlight the relevance of the work that you've done, right? So if we take the Billy Bean analogy, we take the Moneyball analogy, Billy Bean was able to identify mispricings in the labor market. Right? He was able to say, conventional wisdom says this guy's no good, but my model says he's good, so I'm going to hire him. Or conventional wisdom says that this guy's great, my model says he's not so great, so I'm going to short him. So there's underpricing and overpricing in the labor market, which can be exploited to generate alpha for the team. And so if, in fact, the portfolio companies are selected on the basis of the conventional wisdom, which is not supported by the data, this should create a bunch of mispricings, right? So there should be evidence that the ones that have these conventional characteristics were overfunded and the ones that lacked these conventional characteristics are underfunded if indeed the VCs are succumbing to these biases and, and heuristics. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is, well, maybe there is no mispricing. It's that the VCs are sophisticated. It's just the external perception of the VCs is distorted by the media. So are the VCs actually sophisticated and they don't actually fall prey to these biases, in which case there's no opportunity here? Or are they in fact biased? And can we identify that in the data and thereby identify opportunities, underfunded entrepreneurs that we can potentially go and make some money from? Greg, this is the best question anybody has asked about the book. So kudos to the amazing question. I think there's a bit of both. So let's talk about MBAs, for example. So everybody talks about you should not invest in MBAs. Yet you see that even from the, the $3 million group, the random group, 21% of them were MBAs. So investor 21% of every company that's getting funded has an MBA founder. That is kind of significant. So that bias sometimes exists on Twitter. And that bias sometimes exists on other mediums or when people talk about things. But when you come and see what gets funded, maybe you see less of that bias. On the other hand, this is what, what you see got funded. You don't know if this bias did not exist. Maybe it would be 40%. Maybe it would be 50% of every company that gets funded is an MBA. What you really want is a database of pitches that never got any funding at all, right? But you'd still think that the pattern, if it did exist, it would exist on the margin between the unicorns and the non-unicorns, right? 100%. 100%. What I saw, for example, one of these patterns that I saw that had this wide distribution, one is product differentiation. So my data showed the companies that had built product, just the product, that was bizarrely different from whatever was on the market at the time. And I'm not talking about anything, your business model or like go-to-market strategy, anything like that. It was just product was bizarrely different. They were more likely to become billion-dollar companies. And it was a massive, massive arbitrage between the, the normal group and the billion-dollar group. That's a feature that would be super hard to, like when you're filling out your spreadsheet with that particular feature, that's, that's obviously a very subjective feature, right? That's, that's you, Ali, saying this thing's very different. 100%. And part of it was going back in time using a lot of internet archives and reading a lot of articles about the product launch of these companies, trying to understand how many people thought, okay, this is a crazy thing. And you see what gets funded is oftentimes copycats. 
what gets funded yeah. is oftentimes incremental changes in, okay, I see this, and then you have 20 VCs that fund a similar kind of idea. And what you see is actually there's this very specific arbitrage that companies that kind of looked weird, the product looked very different, they were more successful. You also see that in competition, that the companies that were competing with highly funded startups. So you were more likely to win if you're competing with an incumbent or in a fragmented market. And you were less likely to win if you're copying or if you're playing in the same market as another startup, which is just one year ahead of you and has got a lot of funding. And that's what you see again in the data that you see is a lot of these $3 million minimum funded companies, they were the fifth company copying that exact idea of a startup that got super highly funded. But there's a caveat there that the first market advantage actually is not important, which kind of may seem weird based on what I said. But what I mean by first mover advantage or the time to market is in what cycle of this product, a lot of ideas come in cycles and they get tried, it fails. Three years later, they get tried, it fails. So you see that a lot of ideas that became billion-dollar companies, they were not in their first cycle. Like this idea was tried. It's the typical kind of web van Instacart type of story. It's a general magic and iPhone type of story that in the first cycle that an idea was tried, it was not successful. In most cases, it was not even in the first five cycles. It was later. It was after many times that this idea was tried before that they became successful. Mark Andreessen said, right, there's no bad ideas. There's just early ideas. Yeah, they will all happen. It's just a matter of when. Yeah. You said something about how these super founders, right? So if you cut your teeth on a startup and, and you fail, and you know, this is one area where I think conventional wisdom is supported by your book, which is that people like founders who have been founders. Even if they're failed founders, they're potentially better than someone who's a first-time founder. I recall that being kind of supported by your data, that there were these people that had tried, 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 and then bam, they hit it and hit it right. 100%. That's a key finding from the book and that the definition of the super founder, which I go into the book. But basically the finding is second time founders are more likely than first time founders. Obviously, if they were successful in the previous thing or if there was an exit, they were more likely. And these are more, I mean, like three times more, four times more. It's not like 10% more. It's 340% more likely. What is a little bit different from the conventional wisdom is the scale of that success and the scale of that failure. So yeah, everybody says, serial entrepreneur, if you've sold a company for $400 million, everybody is going to give you money to start your next company. That's a no-brainer. That will happen. Where the arbitrage exists is these founders who had something that would look like a failure in the world of venture capital, which is you raised seven, $8 million and you sold your company for $10 million. It was an aqua hire to another company or something like that. You sold your company for $20 million. It was a tech acquisition. You don't see that being the super hot deal. Like somebody who is a PM at, at Google and Stanford degree and you know something hot they're working, that might be a more hot thing than somebody who has had done something and maybe you know sold a company or scale it to some certain size. So what I find is that the bar is very low. And even if you go in different times or geographies, it doesn't even need to be $10 million. So if you go in India or even in Europe or in the previous times, even if you had built something that generated $1 million of like actual true value revenues and sold that company or generated this company, that was a very strong predictor of your success in your next act. 
in building a billion dollar company. And some of the examples I give here is the founder of Calm, this $2 billion meditation app. He built this website called the Million Dollar Homepage. He had a bunch of pixels there, sold each pixel for $1 a pixel and made him 1 million bucks. That's it. He was 21. And that is a more stronger predictor of future success than if you have been like a director of product management at Google who has a lot of people and is building a super hot product. That's the point of the book. And he built two other companies and, and failed. And he had studied at like a non-brand name university. He never worked at a good company. That's the same story for the founders of Clubhouse. They started building social apps and they failed nine times. And they sold their companies, each of them. They sold it to one of them to Open Door and one of them to another company for a very small amount. You see that there. Same thing for Stripe. And age doesn't correlate with success comes into play because you can be the Stripe founders and you may have built and sold a company for $4 million when you were 18. And you may not have had done it. You may have not built anything of value until you were 40. That's why specifically age doesn't come into play. But Brex, Stripe, Airtable. Airtable, he sold a company to Salesforce for $25 million. You see a lot of these patterns that somebody comes in, they build a startup, they raise some funding. It's kind of a venture failure because it's an aqua hire by somebody else. And it's their next act that becomes a billion dollar company. And that's why I kind of suggest to investors, pick your people that you like and then invest in them. You know, maybe it's not the first one or the second one that gets there, but by the third one, they will get there. If they're good people and you don't have any moral issues with backing them back to back. Yeah, so practice makes perfect. It makes me wonder, in the world of education, we, we try to think, well, okay, how can we simulate that within the world of education? It's not easy because if it's part of a class, it's never going to be quite as serious. But on the other hand, we can enable people to start something and just have some experience with a real company. I think that's the best thing. And I think in the book, I say, you know, the best preparation for starting a billion dollar company is having started a $10 million company. The best preparation for that is having started a project, a site, having sold $200,000 worth of stuff online. And then the best preparation for that is this kind of stuff that you do in university and the small projects that you built. So practice does make perfect. It's the experience of generating value, building something and selling it and generating some revenue, whatever that is, doesn't matter how much it is. It's that experience that you learn stuff. So I wonder when you go back to that idea of the new idea, and I wonder if the deliberations that happen inside the venture firm are predictive, right? So I've always heard that there's good ideas and bad ideas, and there's ideas that are seen as good ideas and ideas that are seen as bad ideas. And what you really want is a good idea that looks like a bad idea, because then you're able to get in when no one else is getting into that area. Is that sort of the logic of this new thing, this new thing on a second iteration? It's on the second iteration, so it makes it even look worse. It's like, hey, it failed before. It's going to fail again. To some extent, yes. And it's not on an idea. And I always say my thesis is not a specific industry. My thesis is on people. So yes, if you define an idea as a venture thesis in venture capital, that's basically what you're saying. Yeah. Now, after talking about the founders, you do talk about the type of business and you're looking for patterns there. And I think you did find some patterns with respect to is it a large market size or a small market size? You talk about defensibility. I found the defensibility piece really interesting because those seem like the strongest results in terms of what types of businesses have been able to scale in the period that you're studying. Could you go into that a little bit about the, this is independent of the team, really. This is about the business. Yes. So in terms of market, the majority of these billion dollar companies started in markets that were already big. And by big, I kind of defined it as I don't specifically remember what was the threshold that I set, but it's like tens of billions of dollars. And it wasn't 
the specific market for your technology to that product. It was the demand that existed for that. For example, so for Amazon, it wasn't part of my data set, but the way I would look at Amazon is you're not inventing something like you're selling books, but the demand for buying books is in the billions. You have a new technology to sell it online. So I wouldn't consider that a small market necessarily. The demand for what you're building is there. But for Coinbase, I would consider that a small market because the whole market for cryptocurrencies was $1 million a day worth of transactions at the time Coinbase was founded. Bitcoin was $5 a coin. So it turns out most businesses are not like Coinbase. And most businesses are like Amazon and others. And the main misconception that exists here is that VCs believe, or a lot of people believe, but it's in those Coinbase type of companies that you make the big wins. It's in those new market creation, new demand creation type of companies that you make the $100 billion companies. Turns out that's a myth. On average, companies that had started in a market that already had a large demand were on average bigger outcomes than those that started in a non-existent or a nascent market. So the recommendation from this is not necessarily that, hey, start in a large market, not a small market. That's kind of obvious. But it's the way of you looking at is the demand for what I'm building, does that demand exist or I'm waiting for market to catch up for that demand? So Coinbase had to wait for the demand for cryptocurrency buy and sell. And a bunch of startups are like that, that they had to wait for that to happen. But it's easier and normally better if there's an existing budget line item or there's an existing demand, there's existing $20 billion worth of this article of commerce is getting traded every year and I'm replacing that with my product. So that's the market thing. In terms of defensibility, I looked into, you know, what are the different ways that these companies became defensible and what was their number one strategy for becoming defensible? And the ones that relied on network effects, basically accumulating advantages that when you get one more user or one more customer or one more whatever data point, your business becomes easier and something changes in your business. And the most extreme case of this is social networks, but there are less extreme cases of network effects as well in marketplaces and in a lot of other things. These are more likely to become billion dollar companies. One thing that's interesting is IP, that's patents, did not increase or decrease the chances of becoming a billion dollar company, which which is ironic because that's its only job to defend your company. But I think a lot of people in venture and startup world know that Patents are more of a defensive strategy than offensive. You're not going to do anything with them, but you just have them so that Apple doesn't come and sue you when you're successful. So it doesn't make you become more successful, become a billion dollar company, but may have helped you not to get sued or lose your business at one point. And then I had this thing around brand as well. There are a lot of companies that relied on brand and community. They were more likely to as well to become billion dollar companies. I didn't even know there were companies left that didn't leverage network effects to some degree or another. I guess those are the ones that we never heard of, right? To some extent. I mean, I would say there is a lot of companies that do not have network effects. Medical devices. Yeah. I mean, a lot of companies that you're selling something, even you're selling a SaaS solution or enterprise solution. And I was kind of probably strict in what I define as somebody having a network effects or not. Every company would become better if they have 10 customers versus eight. But that's not the way you specifically I define network effects in the study. It was kind of more of a direct, you have one more customer and because of their data or something, your business directly becomes better. 
And even when you look at the random group, which is the companies that raised $3 million or more, I think only 20% or something less than that had network effects built in to their defensibility. A lot of companies get network effects in the long run when they have 10 million users, but not many of them have network effects built into their business model from day one. I would say that's more of a scale defensibility. And towards the end of the book, you talk about funding strategies and you talk about how important I think venture funding is for these companies. Now, of course, all of the companies in your database are ones that received some funding, but in particular, you talk about who you get your funding from and how this might have an impact. And you also talk a bit about the role of accelerators and YC and, and others. And so this is, I think, is really something for the founders themselves, right? As a founder, it's just as important that you find the right funding source as it is for the investors to find the right portfolio company, right? And so what would be your advice if you want to maximize the likelihood of success and you have a choice of where to get your funding from? What would you advise the founders if they had these options? We don't have causation. All we have is correlation. Of course, we understand that. But if we, exactly, if you have a plausible theory about causation. For sure. So let me talk about what the data is, what the chart is saying, and then we can talk about the things around it. So the chart is saying the billion dollar companies or the companies that ended up becoming billion dollar ones, they were five times more likely to have had raised their seed or Series A fund from a brand name tier one venture capital firm. That's the typical kind of Sequoias and Axel and Benchmark and these kind of firms. It's staggering. 60%. That's a lot higher than I would have thought. Now, there's definitely no causation here. There might be reverse correlation here that there were good companies and sure, Andreessen got a chance to put in money in this amazing founder. So you can't say because they raised from a tier one fund, they became a billion dollar company. But when you look back, that thing exists. We can't deny that thing. It's still relevant, right? Because if it's even if it's reverse causation, it says something for the LPs, right? Because if you're an LP and you have a choice of who to invest with, I talk to a lot of LPs, a lot of pension funds, and everyone wants to invest with the name brand funds. And of course, access is very difficult. And so they're like, well, venture has this return and we want to get a piece of that return. And these are the folks we have available to us. And so let's just give them a little allocation or, or something like that. So I think the returns for a lot of LPs have been very disappointing in part because they tend to invest in marginal funds. Correct. And I think this is the access play. This is the network effects of venture capital startups. This is the exponential 2080 kind of curve that exists in the startup world that translates itself into the venture capital world that translates itself into the world of LPs, which is there's this flywheel that creates this strong network effects for, for the brand name funds, but 60% were tier one. 40% of are not. So that's where a new entrant VC can create an arbitrage. There's a good number of funds that started from nowhere and became that tier one fund. It's not impossible. And it's in that hustle and finding the right thesis and finding those 40% non-obvious characteristics or finding a way to get themselves into those 60% obvious deals. But I think the thing to the founders is things are a little bit more obvious to VCs or that hot deals are hot deals for a reason. And these are some of the hot deals that become obvious to VCs and it's the VCs who are fighting for those deals. And it tends to be that these companies are more likely to become the billion dollar companies at the end of the day as well. But it's important that as a new fund, you can get yourself into the right 40%. And as a new founder, which is not a super founder or doesn't have the pedigree, you can become part of that 40% that gets to the billion dollar outcomes. And then in terms of accelerators, 
What's your view on accelerators? And also, venture capitalists are getting into the game earlier and earlier. I mean, I, I sometimes imagine that VCs are now starting to go to high school events to look for prospective companies to invest in. And I've even seen some VCs come to campus and they'll basically just give $1,000 check for a one-page description of an idea. I've seen this happen at Berkeley. So choosing an accelerator, should you shoot to get into an accelerator or could you just start grabbing seed money as, as soon as possible? Well, I'm not going to make a recommendation there. I'm going to say what the data says. I think a lot of people think the role of accelerator programs is a much larger role than what it is. And the data says only 15% of the billion-dollar companies, one-five, less than 20% of billion-dollar companies went through any kind of incubator accelerator program. The other 85%, they did not. They just raised money from a good VC and they started building a company. Now, this does not knock out the importance or, or the value that some of them create, especially for the first-time founder. For example, when I look at the data, and it's very important specifically in the accelerator side because normally accelerators should come before you raise $3 million of funding. So it's very important to understand that my random group is companies that have raised $3 million of funding. So by design, it should be that you're less likely than the random group if you went to an accelerator program because the more funding you've received, it's linearly correlated with your success. But for example, when you look at Y Combinator, actually, if you had been in Y Combinator, you were more likely to become a billion dollar company, even than companies that had raised $3 million. So there are some values in there, but in absolute numbers, it's only 15%. So again, the data is very nuanced on a lot of these topics. What does it say in abstract? And what does it say in comparison? And so I think last question on machine learning and We've seen machine learning kind of take over pretty much all decision-making you know, in almost every domain except maybe art curation and venture capital. I put those two together in part because a lot of people would say there's really no way that you can get a relevant training data set together to automate the process of screening, selection, or pretty much anything else because there's just so much drift, right? Anything that would have worked last year is water under the bridge. But then you see these companies, you know, like Correlation Ventures and, and Equiom, Signal Fire. You know, I know folks at Ridge who are trying to use data to try and do it in a more automated way, right? To try and replicate what you see in recruiting and hiring at large companies and investing from banks and so forth. Do you think that we'll ever be able to use machine learning for at least some of the venture process? Or is that a pipe dream given the, the fact that Ventures always on the cutting edge, always looking at what's new. Will there always be this gut instinct that is irreplaceable by automation? I think there would be. I think we are getting to the point that there's more data. And I think to some extent, a lot of this talk about you can't do this, everything changes. A part of it has been because not a lot of people try to collect this data because it's hard. It actually requires a lot of work to collect the data. Even the data set that I have, 30,000 data points, it's good enough for machine learning level, regression level kind of stuff. It's not good enough for deep learning to become and make decisions. And data is always going to be scarce and things are always going to change. So I hope part of it can push us towards that direction. But what's also very important, and my goal with the book is the reverse of that, how we can use data to decrease the biases, to put aside things that don't matter. Because right now, a lot of VCs, a lot of people create these scoring things, like a lot of these judge competitions and stuff like People have the scores, okay, I'm going to give five scores to this element and five scores to this element. And you see the scoring system is wrong. The book, what I'm trying to do is, okay, just throw away that scoring system because half of it is the wrong elements you're looking at. 
you're looking at the domain expertise of the founder five score turns out that's not correlated with success what are you scoring so a big part of this book is putting aside things that don't matter age gender race things that don't matter should be set aside and then how we can use data to better source founders and source companies i think that's something that's becoming more and more useful but at the end of the day the biggest problem here is going to be access and the fact that i talk about 60% of these billion dollar companies were invested by the tier one brand name VCs. It's a very brand driven game and for good reasons. And even if you have the best database and the best sourcing mechanism and the best decision making mechanism, it's no guarantee that you are going to win a deal better than the firm that has had a better brand or has invested in 20 billion dollar companies in the past 10 years. So I think that will always exist, but I think more and more firms would start adapting technology to help them better source talent, source founders, or source ideas or sectors that we are going towards. Well, final question. Why write the book? Why publish it? That's what academics do. You're actually an investor and you're trying to look for market imperfections and exploit them. I mean, I had a professor in business school who discovered this anomaly in the financial markets and he published it in, in a financial journal and, and then the anomaly went away. And I said to the guys like, <laughs> you could have made a few billion dollars if you just started a fund and, and traded on this instead of publishing it in the journal of finance. Like, why would you do this kind of thing? And you see lots of books. I mean, you know, Ben Horowitz publishes books and, and a lot of folks are out there and I understand part of it's just pay it forward. Part of it's about publicity. But if this is really a, an arbitrage opportunity, aren't you concerned that Publishing the book is going to reduce your ability to exploit it. You're like an academic. What are you doing? <laughs> That's again, another great question, Greg. Well, one, I'm publishing the insights from the data. I'm not giving away the raw data set. And if anybody wants to do an actual algorithmically driven investment decision, you need access to the whole data because there's a lot of nuances compared to, you know, if you have this factor, but this other factor, how does these things relate to? So that's the more valuable part. And what's getting published is just the first level insights that's coming out. That's a one part. And second part, I think a big part of the book is about things that don't matter. And I wanted to make sure that gets out about things that people have biases and they wrong the stereotypes. And I think that's a service to the community and the venture startup community and more founders getting access to capital and more founders being able to get to invest. And I think that will hopefully come back in terms of my access to deals and my access to the right investments. And as I said, there's a lot of things deeper into the data and there's a lot of nuances with a lot of these insights that I talk about that if you just want to take things at face value and use that to invest, it's not necessarily the best strategy, but you need to go two layers deep to understand, okay, with this specific type of founder and these kind of situations, what was the deal and what the data said? Ali, great. Thanks so much for uh, joining me. Super founders, check it out. Fresh off the presses, what data reveals about billion dollar startups. Great talking to you. Hope to see you sometime soon. Thank you, Greg. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.